0: Good afternoon and welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Zoe George and Andrew Hoggard with us this afternoon. Uh, Julian says, Andrew's so right. In the late 80s I built a house on a floodplain. Council told me they knew it flooded but I was allowed a permit if the house was built on metro high piles. And it has suffered various floods over the years because of that, says Julian in Nelson. And memories coming through of uh, Georgina Bayer. If you haven't uh, heard, um, the world's first transgender politician, Georgina Bayer, has died. Friends of the groundbreaking politician and activist say she died a short time ago. Roz says, I am very sad to hear of the death of Georgina Bayer. She overcame huge difficulties in her life to become a leader in the New Zealand community. She had immense charm, humor and intelligence. So keep those um, well, that feedback coming two one zero one. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Also, news just announced after four, the government has approved twenty six million dollars a twenty six million dollar grant extension for farmers and growers, taking the total primary sector support to fifty five million dollars, up to ten thousand dollars for pasture and arable farmers growers, and up to two thousand dollars per hectare. That's up to a maximum of $40,000 for growers. And because Andrew's on the show, the president of Fed Farmers, I just wanted to raise this um, uh, wearing your Fed Farmers hat, Andrew. This $26 million extension just announced a few minutes ago. Uh, welcome news.
1: Yeah, definitely. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of people that are still struggling to sort of get their head around the damage they've suffered and be able to. You know, sit down and process it all, and actually put in applications. So you know, the fact that the first uh, twenty-five million was almost utilized, and there's probably a hell of a lot of people that haven't actually put their claims in yet, myself included. Nice. Um, it's good that they've made more uh, more money available, and you know, it, it's not it's not going to cover everything for every no. farmer. Um, when when you think about it, you know, um, post and bat and fence to replace that's about twenty dollars a meter.
0: Ooh. And, you
1: know, I've lost about uh, a kilometre of fencing. Um, thankfully, it's not, not that expensive because it's just got to hold cows and not sheep. Um, but, yeah, now if I was a sheep farmer, uh, that would be 20k gone um, along with all the other damage. So, yeah, it, it's it's going to help.
0: It's extraordinary. Why the difference in fencing between cows and sheep, by the way?
1: Because uh, you need to have eight wires. You need to have battens. And lots more staples, whereas with cows, it's just two electric wires um, and that stops them But for cows. But for sheep, they just go straight through that. So you need a lot more structure to it, which is a bad thing in a flood because then you get more debris hit it and you lose more. Um, Whereas with my two-wire electric, I just had to go along and pull all the twigs off it and most of it was salvageable.
0: Okay. I was reading while, just on this, I was reading today that the issue of access is really still quite fraught for farmers regarding rural road closures, really hampering not just recovery, but actually just getting back to work.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's probably one of the biggest um, concerns we've got of... For people being able to, you know, if they've suffered damage and slips and maybe short on feed, um, the two options are either bring feed in or get animals out. But if you don't have access, you can't do either of those. Um, And for supplies, um, you know, veterinary supplies to be able to look after animals, Um, you know, if you haven't got access, it's hard to go to the vet clinic to get it. You got to wait on a helicopter supply. So yeah, it's really challenging to run a business when you, you've got no access to oh goodness. to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, by the way, applications for the cleanup grants are open until the 20th of March. But those in hard to reach areas can apply up until April the 3rd. Please note that farmers and growers who have already received MPI grants are not eligible to apply again. Twelve past four to this. Government is to rethink its incoming transport plan in the wake of Cyclone Gabriel. The focus is shifting to an emergency style plan to tackle the huge task of reconstruction of ruined roads and washed out bridges alongside building with greater resilience in the event of more extreme weather. It was to focus strongly on public transport and away from emissions-intensive investments like new highways. According to Waka Kutahi, transport accounts for 47% of domestic CO2 emissions and 20% of the country's total greenhouse gas emissions. So to someone who has his eye on this sort of thing is Matt Lowry from Greater Auckland, which is a non-profit group that advocates for public transport and urbanism. Uh, in Auckland mainly. Kia ora Matt.
2: Kia Wallace.
0: So getting people out and away from the cars in Auckland, not a new topic Matt, but the last 2018 um, uh, government policy statement caused some highways to be scrapped. Such an outcry that Labour borrowed money to build roads anyway uh, and here we are, the government rethinking its incoming transport plan already.
2: Yeah, I think we've got to separate out what the the issues around the climate resilience piece uh, in terms of how we manage our existing roads and also that recovery. And I think the key thing for for how we recover from the, the damage that's been caused is making sure that we don't overbuild. You know, there's a strong push from from some in in, this, um, in the in the country that we you know we should build these gold plated highways in a lot of places, and and that's really you know motorways the everywhere, and that's just really not practical, not cost-effective. And so, you know, we absolutely need to get our communities reconnected, and we need to do we need to do that as quickly as possible. And to do that as quickly as possible, we need to make sure that we're not uh, overbuilding these things, so we can get them done, get them done quickly and efficiently.
0: Yeah, um, because that's often the suggestion, isn't it? That what needs to happen is we knew we need to make all roads like the Hamilton expressway uh which is next level style of riding but it took a long time decades uh and quite complex sort of engineering but that's not feasible for all roads
2: that's right and and so you know there are places where that, where that kind of investment is, is warranted um but most of these cases is probably not going to be um and and it doesn't take away from the fact that in our, in our cities and, and towns we need to do better at making more options available for people for how they get around And that's really a really critical piece. A key part of this overall strategy is how we how we address climate change. And part of that is mitigation and part of that is adaptation. And so getting that balance right is, is important.
0: Yeah. Shall we go around the panel on this one, Zoe George?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Because when I think about roading and neglected roading, I think about what's been going on in Gisborne, because some of those roads up there have been neglected for decades, and it's really isolated communities. And unfortunately, in parts like that, their public transport network is not great compared to other parts of the country saying that transport public transport networks and the likes of Wellington has its problems uh, as well so I, I mean I don't even know where to start with this I find it incredibly fascinating I know there's more money that's going into this but what's the solution here how do we strike the right balance between making sure that we have roads that people can access particularly those in rural environments versus encouraging those particularly in our urban environments to take public transport.
0: Matt?
2: Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, I, I think the, the key is, is making sure we, we we do things as, you know, we, we can't be affording to be building, um, you know, new rail lines and busways or you know, underground metros everywhere. That's how we make better use of our existing road space, and that's one of the things that, that sort of popped up in the, in the news this morning is sort of outrage that we might look at this. But it's actually a, a really important part of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle is, you know, when we're doing maintenance on roads, currently if we... We'll, we'll dig up a road, we'll replace, you know, reseal it, for example, and then maybe a year later we might come back and we decide we want to put a cycleway or do something else with it. And we go through these processes and we dig it up again and we put them in. And one of the one of the suggestions that, that was supposedly causing an outrage as part of this change is, is that we should perhaps do these things at the same time. And we could, at the same time as we're, we're resealing the road, we could change the way the markings are on it to, to provide a bit more space for for people on bikes or. Maybe a bus lane, or, or something along those lines, and so getting smarter with how we use our money there means that we've got more money for for other areas of the country that, for example, like this recovery work. And so, you know, that's a good use of a good use of money to to do these sorts of things at the same time, particularly when they're pretty straightforward changes.
0: Oh, okay. What about you, Andrew?
2: Yeah, well, I guess coming from a rural
1: perspective, um, hmm. roads are critical for us. Um, yeah, public transport, um, cycleways don't really cut it um, when you're uh, living so far out of town. And they're, they're, they're not what's needed in terms of you know getting the produce from our farms um, into the ports, which is where this country earns a good chunk of its revenue from. And so we need a roading system that not only enables uh, rural folk and people in regions to be able to themselves get to the town, but also, you know, efficient in terms of conveying those goods to sale, um, okay. So that we can get the money, and I, I guess it's finding that right balance, as we pointed out before, around meeting all the needs. Um, I do think there needs to be a consideration as we're moving forward, if they're looking at increasing road u- road user charges. Um, are we thinking about bringing those in on EV, for EVs and um, making sure that oh, you know, okay. everyone that's using the roads are paying for them?
0: A couple of uh, topics there. No one's denying, Matt, that uh, we need a resilient supply chain. You can see the effect in some of our supermarkets, so we, we need those roads to be there for goods. Whether uh, like or not, trucking is a hugely dominant uh, regard to supply chain. What do you have to say to Andrew's thoughts there, Matt?
2: well I think that the the thing that that often holds up particularly trucks and making deliveries and, and you know, whether it be to port or whether it be around you know, within our cities is often people who are in, in their cars who who might not want to be or might not need to be um who could have other options if we provided those other options so I think I don't think it's it's at all um, in conflict with what Andrew's saying is is that you know yeah there are absolutely things that we you know we have to move by trucking you know, and freight um and and other you know Goods and services that need to be by road because it's not practical other ways. Yeah, absolutely, we, we we need to get those roads working. And one of the best ways we can do that is to get get people off there who who, it, who don't want to be on the roads, who you know who could have other options. Right. If we if we provided those those safe and good quality options for them to do so, and so, yeah, you know, doing that can help free up the roads to to make those deliveries more efficient. You know, trucks can then make more deliveries per day, which makes them more cost effective. Uh, so there's you know there's a lot of benefits that can come to to both freight and to um, community from you know, reduced congestion all the rest of it by, reducing, by making use of our roads more efficiently. Yeah. Reducing
0: yeah. congestion, increasing productivity perhaps. Matt, always good to have you on. Kia ora, thank you for your time there. That's Matt Nauri from uh, Greater Auckland, uh, which is a group that advocates for uh, urbanism in uh, Tamaki Makaurau here is twenty past four, and your memories of Georgina Byer uh, coming through. If you have just joined us and you haven't heard, the world's first transgender politician, Georgina Bayer has died. So keep those memories coming and with us. The memory is um, Richard Pumata uh, who uh, met uh, Georgina several times. Richard kia ora, good to have you here. Oh, kia
4: ora. Thing
0: to hear on the news I know straight out hey eh? yes quite as Zoe echoing Zoe I guess Richard quite a um, took your breath away quite shocking there but uh, I mean what was your uh, memory I
4: worked at Mecca on the viaduct as the maitre
0: or to use the term the actually Richard the... I'm so sorry to interrupt could you just maybe take it off speaker or turn your head a bit because you're very very faint Oh my goodness gracious, Richard, I can hardly hear you. Can you just move somewhere else to another part of, part of the office? I'm so sorry.
4: <coughs> I'm on State Highway 16, so oh,
0: that's, how's it? Yeah, b- beautifully clear. Right,
4: so I worked at Mecca on the Violet as the maitre D, and Georgina was a fairly regular customer if she was in Auckland on selectivity business or had things to do up here. She would come in about the same time, quarter to eight, eight o'clock, 8.30. She always liked the same outside table (laughs) in the corner. And she always had either the chicken lasagna or a chicken salad or a single serve of the lamb shank, a glass of red, a glass of white, and normally something for dessert. She was really low-key, really gracious, but she always wanted to know what people were thinking about. Yeah. You know, what, is, what are the customers telling me? What do we need to be thinking about? She was a good tipper and very, very funny and ever so slightly gossipy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I recalled her uh, from the TV show uh, Backbenders, needless to say, Richard, uh, a real loss that she's passed.
4: Yeah, and I think what she brought to the political world was the fact that you didn't have to be uh, heterosexual, you didn't have to be a white person, you could be transgender, Maori and different and sitting outside what we normally thought and of course with that positionality she brought a whole new way of looking at what might be an issue before the parliament
0: Yeah, good on you Richard yeah, Dorothy says, uh, RIP Georgina, a courageous soul now at risk Kia ora. Richard, thanks for the memory Appreciate it Uh, 23 pass for the panel RNZ National. With me today we have Zoe George, who's a staff, senior sports journalist and podium podcast host, and Andrew Hoggard, president of the Federated Farmers. And to this, as many will know, after your mortgage, childcare can be the biggest expense. RNZ interviewed one Stephanie Fox, who said that she and her husband paid $511 a week on childcare for their two preschool children. This covered a combined seven days of childcare for their three-year-old and one-year-old. Now, National is promising to create a family boost childcare tax rebate to make early childhood education more affordable. And if it wins the election, it'll give 130,000 low- and middle-income families up to $75 more in their after-tax pay each Week with us to discuss Craig Rennie, an economist and director of the policy, or director of policy rather, of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. Craig, kia ora. kia ora. So, a targeted program, the full rebate available to families earning up to 140,000. What do you think?
5: Um, well, we can argue whether it, it's, it's targeted, um, it applies to a very large range of individuals. Um, and it applies to those who are already in receipt um, of childcare rather than those who might actually want to access childcare and who can't get it. But there's, there's half a really good idea here, which is that, you know, putting more money into ECE is, is a really good idea. Helping to support ECE centres is a really good idea. The challenge is, is it going to do the good that we hope it might do? And on that scale, there's a lot of questions that have been left unanswered by this announcement.
0: Okay, So a disclaimer here, you're also a treasurer of an an, uh, ECE centre. What is the nature of early childcare here in New Zealand, Craig? Because there are a number of for-profits dominating New Zealand. How does that change things?
5: Uh, well, one of the things it does is it means that there's a real challenge in avoiding money simply going to profit in centres, rather than in, in overseas jurisdictions where uh, ECE is run. Soviet is a not-for-profit entity. So, in New Zealand, the, the announcement from the National Party yesterday may well mean that for some centres, they say, "Great, there's more money in parents' pockets. We can therefore put the pricing up." Um, for the cost of the service. And that just simply leads to higher profits for the providers. The the, the five largest providers scoop up somewhere in the order of 80% of all of the the money. And so, therefore, there's a real challenge in making sure the money is retained in the ECE centres and in retained in good services for ECE centres, rather than just simply disappearing into shareholder value.
0: All right. Let's bring Zoe Georgian.
3: Yeah, I just could not believe how expensive childcare was. I don't right? have children. Incredible, I don't have huh? kids, but uh, it was insane. But I, I was talking to some of my friends who have children, and many of them have chosen not to go back to work and delay going back into their careers so that they could have their kids at home, which also has long-term impacts on them as well. So they're delaying their careers by five years, which also means that they have uh, a lower amount of money going into their KiwiSaver for retirement, Um But, I mean, I have to ask, is the price of ECE in New Zealand outrageous?
5: Um, I can certainly say that New Zealand provides some of the most expensive ECE anywhere in the developed world. Um, And it is one of the real biggest barriers uh, to to both men and women returning.
0: That's amazing. So why is that, Greg?
5: Um, The honest answer is that there's diminished supply. Um, We don't have a standardised uh, uh, nationally provided, a uh, uh, government-provided network, which a lot of other um, countries do.
0: So why um, is that?
5: Um, it's just historically. It's, just, it's, it's the historical pattern of development, development that we've had um, in this sector. Other countries have made deliberate decisions to, to make nationally available ECE available, Um, New Zealand hasn't chosen to do that. Isn't
0: that that the biggest story? Just why early childcare in this country is such an outlier in the education system?
5: And, you know, it's one of many things that, you know, we haven't done well in in the sense that, you know, I could look at rents, and we have some of the most expensive rents in the developed world as well. Um, But for ECE... um, but our development pattern means that we we haven't had the kind of the development of the systematic ECE service that other countries have. Mm. So the proposal that's on the table is great. It puts the money back in those parents' pockets. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't create any more spaces. It doesn't create any more ECE centers. Got it. So yep. we're not really tackling the other side of the equation. Which is the bit that we may actually want to do if we're really to tackle the problem head-on in New Zealand?
1: Andrew
0: Hargard, you got views, thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, yeah, I just echo. That obviously, you know, demand's one thing, but supply, as was mentioned before, mm. is another thing to help bring the price down. Um, I, I guess just following on from the point Zoe was making around, you know, people that are um, looking at the cost of it and going, "Oh, I'll just stay at home and look after the kids," and, and if that's their choice, cool. Um, But at the moment, you know, we're we're struggling for, you know, our workforce is really tight. And so being able to support, you know, new parents, being able to go back into the workforce earlier will be of benefit to the country. So I think, you know, it's important that, you know, as much as we can, we we sort of target um, that support while the cost of living so high to ensure that, you know, those families that most need it are able to benefit from it. Um, So, yeah, as with all things, obviously the devil will be in the detail of the policy, Mm -hmm. so things can sound good from the outset, but you never know until you see the legislation as to whether it's actually going to work or not.
0: And, Craig, not to forget that the government has announced its own uh, $190 million support package to provide more childcare assistance to families. That was last year. In fact, the family tax credit comes into Mm -hmm. force Next month, doesn't it?
5: It does, and part of the package last year was targeting um, those on very, very low incomes, those who access uh, already the government support to access childcare. This is much more broadly available, um, potentially to parents up to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. So it's not quite um, as targeted in the system. So, so hang on. Um, so the,
0: the the national one is not as targeted as no, the Labour one.
5: That's one. No, it's, it's much more broadly um, available. Um, the National Party's one is available to households who earn up to $180,000 yeah. a year, um, whereas the Leader Party's previous policy is much more targeted towards those who are already in receipt of, uh, or very close to receipt of, uh, Ministry of Social Development support already.
0: Very interesting, Craig. Kia ora. Nice to have you on. That's Craig Rennie, economist uh, and director of uh, policy at the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions and uh, a treasurer of an uh, ECE. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Nice to have you company this Monday afternoon. And, um, uh, yeah, Zoe, extraordinary, isn't it? That's just so much money, the next biggest cost after your mortgage. I'd like to hear from other people who are really you know, struggling to get that money together every fortnight.
3: Gosh, I mean, I couldn't afford to have children. Um, and when we think that, you know, the National have said up to 180000 they say that that's middle income at 180000 Goodness, I wouldn't mind $180,000 right now. That would be quite nice.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Now, uh, the song, Whisperer, in a couple of minutes, uh, one more clue, Searching in the Sun for Another Overload. What's the song?